Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program where we let our thoughts wander over issues to do with cars and transport. I'm David Brown. And in this program, we have new stories, including Hyundai's Ionic 5 redefines electric mobility lifestyle. And we have three interviews. We have Scott Naga from Hyundai, who gives us an update where hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, including trucks, are at. Paul Morell goes in search of an old, great, valiant V8 classic car, and he talks about the life and times of the vehicle. And again, we get a segment from Michael Caltabiano, the CEO of ARRB, about the new technology in assessing the conditions of our roads, that is, finding where potholes might develop before they become a problem. As always, you can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. Or you can go to our Facebook page on Overdrive City. So we'll get the program going. Let's start with the news. Hyundai has just announced its next-generation electric vehicle, the Ionic midsize SUV, which will be in Australia in the third quarter this year. Scott Naga, Hyundai's Senior Manager of Future Mobility and Government Relations, can't wait for the Ionic to arrive. We've got another vehicle coming this year called Ionic 5, which is going to be the next level. This vehicle is going to have a battery that can take 400 and 800 volt charging. It'll take 350 kilowatts into the battery of charge. So it can charge the vehicle from 0 to 80% in around 12 to 14 minutes and it'll have over 500 kilometres range. It's got a vehicle to load capabilities where there's a power point at the base of the back seat to be able to plug appliances into or you know, be able to power elements of your home. So the technology is, is rapidly advancing, and I, we should definitely have a chat once that car's launched. There is considerable scepticism about the rated fuel economy figures for petrol and diesel engine cars. What is determined in the laboratory is rarely achieved in real-world operations. The Edmunds.com website has now compared how well electric cars meet the range expectations as determined by the American EPA. Edmunds took vehicles over a route that is approximately 60% city, 40% highway driving, which, they say, is likely to produce a better figure than the EPA. Vehicles that did better than their rated figures included the Kia Nero, which went 74 kilometres further, the Mini Cooper, 64 kilometres, and the Nissan Leaf, 35 kilometres. The Polestar 2, Volvo's offshoot, did not quite make the rated figure, being 8 kilometres short, while every Tesla model tested was short of the defined range, varying from 12 kilometres to 87 kilometres. The Suzuki Swift first came onto the international market in 2000, It has been somewhat of a quiet achiever over the years, with a loyal following. The latest model, the third generation of the vehicle, is a bit bigger and has more style. While Suzuki has 35 factories in 23 countries, its products reflect the Japanese attention to solid and dependable design. Its technology is not class-leading, the entry-level version has only a 5-speed manual gearbox, although you can option a CVT automatic. It comes in three variations, the GL, the GLX Turbo, and the 1.4 Sport, which is a great little hot hatch with bright colours that make it look the part. 
with starting prices at $19,000 plus on-road costs, the Swift is doing very well in the sales market, particularly compared against more expensive cars like the new Toyota Yaris. A recent Shannon's auction saw a 1958 356A Porsche, which, by the way, was in appalling condition, including rust all over the body, sell for $230,000, more than twice the expected price. It would take at least another $150,000 to restore it. But the sale that caught our attention was the Mini Moke that reached $37,000. The Moke has a roofless, doorless design that was very much a fun car. They were ideal for newsagents that had to deliver papers to individual houses. You could throw them from the vehicle without interference from any vehicle structure. By comparison, a 1983 Jaguar XJ6 sold for $5,200. The catalogue said the Series 3 XJ6 is a classic Jaguar saloon that can be enjoyed every day with no shortage of spares or specialists available to maintain them and can be immensely rewarding cars to own. The keywords there are can be. And that has been the news. As mentioned in the news, Scott Nagar is the Senior Manager of Future Mobility and Government Relations for Hyundai Australia. The Hyundai Motor Corporation is pursuing battery-powered vehicles, but they are also developing hydrogen fuel cells to provide electric power. Here is part of a long chat we had recently. Scott, the thing about hydrogen is that when it floats free just hydrogen atoms, it's a case that it takes up a lot of space for the amount of energy it gives. Is that the problem? That is the problem, and that's why in motor vehicles, when we have hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, we need to pressurise the hydrogen to about 10,000 psi or 700 bar to run those, and that gives us the amount of energy in the tank we need to drive as far as a normal car would drive. So in the Hyundai Nexo, that's 666 kilometres is the real-world range, and that's on 6.3 kilos of hydrogen. So that means you need a very strong container, doesn't it, because you've got such high pressures? That's correct. The the tanks we use are carbon fibre tanks. They're classified or called a DOT4 tank. They're a plastic-lined carbon fibre vessel that can hold hydrogen at that, that 10,000 psi or 700 bar. I'm quite comfortable with that, but of course it just makes it rather cumbersome. There is a possibility of if hydrogen combines with another element and forms a molecule, it can pack it in better. Are there examples of that? Yeah, there are examples, and and speaking to people in the industry, there there are thousands of different examples of that, and they're called metal hydride. So it's having metal or some kind of a substance inside a tank it actually attracts the hydrogen to it. Um, and hydrides are basically used for storing hydrogen um, because they've good got good binding properties. The problem is you need to cool the hydrogen down for it to um, bind to those um, hydrides in the tank. And to get it out, you need to actually heat the tanks up or heat the hydrogen to get it out. And usually that's roughly around 120 degrees Celsius to get that hydrogen released from those hydrides. So it takes both a, a difficult situation but also energy to do that to to get it to work it's there but you've got to get it out that's correct i mean it, it's good technology it's around it's, it's good for storing on site uh, it may be good for moving hydrogen around in trucks uh, at the moment in australia we have hydrogen um, tankers that go around the country uh, they've been doing it for a, a lot of years um, and it's generally about 
200 bar, um, but those hydrogen trucks have got um, the hydrogen stored in them. So we think about what hydrogen is used for. It's made for um, manufacturing of steel and glass and food and fats and peanut butter. We've been shipping hydrogen around Australia for a very, very long time, but we're not moving a whole lot of that um, that product around. Uh, you're basically moving steel around. So there's other ways of ab- absorbing or containing more hydrogen in the same um, the same package and then shipping it around. If I had it in a truck, what sort of distance could a large truck travel if it was hydrogen powered with a reasonable application of tanks on the back? Yeah, generally, so we've got trucks on the road now in Europe. So the, the Hyundai Accent is, is on the road. Uh, got to start, well, the first delivery started uh, late last year. That truck holds about 35 kilos of hydrogen uh, at half pressure at 350 bar. And that truck's doing about 500 kilometres. Now, those trucks, we can have the full pressure tanks that are used in vehicles. Um, it just means that the hydrogen stations need to compress higher uh, and also um, pre-cool the hydrogen before it goes into the, into the, the trucks. And it's more, it means that stations are more expensive. So as a rule of thumb, any kind of heavy vehicle, whether it be truck, train, tram or ferry, we'll be using 350 bar pressure hydrogen now and vehicles being uh, the Hyundai Nexo, the Toyota Mirai, the Honda Clarity um, and others will be using full pressure 700 bar. But in the future, we're going to see more and more heavy vehicles start using 700 bar hydrogen because the stations are becoming more common you can get a lot more energy into those smaller spaces. So in, a, in the case of a truck, instead of having five or six uh, 350 bar cylinders, you'd have five or six 700 bar cylinders giving you twice as much range in that truck. It just means the infrastructure is going to be a bit more expensive up front. Is it taking a lot of room on the truck? No, in our case, uh, if, if people want to jump on uh, any of the, the sites or, or Google search uh, Hyundai Accent truck, you'll see the cylinders are behind the cab, almost behind the aero wing on the cab. And there's one cylinder on top of the cab um, that's kind of behind the big aero wing. And those trucks are on the road now with, with Hyundai customers in Switzerland. So we started delivering the trucks last year. I think in total we're delivering uh, 1,500 trucks for this order uh, to a number of customers. And that's really just proving the concept that zero emission heavy transport is here now and it does work. And there's also hydrogen trains running in Germany right now and hydrogen buses have been around for a long time. We have what could be a very good fuel security situation if we're using renewable solar and wind to uh, not create but to produce the the hydrogen rather than importing fossil fuels. Yeah, this is one of my pet topics at the moment. I've spent a lot of time uh, down with the government. I've sat on fuel security uh, conferences and and, um, sessions with with the government and industry looking at fuel security for Australia and, and looking at you know, what our limited supplies are here. And the fact is that uh, 10 years ago, we had seven oil refineries in Australia. Six months ago, we had four oil refineries. Now, in the last couple of months, we've had two oil refineries that have indicated they're going to close down. The government's put a whole lot of money on the table and said that we want to help invest and keep these um, places operational. Out of the two that are left in Australia right now, only one of them's take or one of them's taken the uh, government up on the offer of money. Now, I don't know what's going to happen with the other one, but you know, if money on the table um, to keep places operational generally is going to be taken. But the benefit of Australia having so much room, having so much um, renewable resources like wind and solar, if you look at some of the CSIRO's um, heat maps and wind maps, there's no other better place on our planet to have an overlap of solar farms and wind farms in the same places across the 
South Australian coastline, Western Australian, um, a lot of parts of Queensland and, and New South Wales and, and parts of Victoria and, and right around Tassie to create renewable energy. And that was Scott Nager, Senior Manager of Future Mobility and Government Relations at Hyundai Australia. You're listening to Overdrive. Our good friend Paul Morell has been in pursuit of a classic motorcar. Not greatly famous, but one that tells us about the life and times of that period of motoring. Paul, you've been doing some research on a classic vehicle, a V8 of an era that really ushered in that sort of V8 for the everyman, or certainly the hoon, on the street. What's that vehicle? Uh, that was, David, I'm doing a story on the Valiant VC, which is the car that followed the AP6 and, it, uh, and preceded the VE Valiant. So it was the, it was looked, it looked very Dodge-like in its design. Lovely car. And Valiant, of course, had been offering a V8 since 1964, uh, in their cars. And no, no other Australian manufacturer at that stage had a V8 in their range. Uh, it was, I think, 1960, 1968, that the Ford Falcon introduced the the V8, and then it was, uh, or 67, and then in 68, Holden with the HK Holden finally was able to offer a V8. Um, and it was, it was quite strange because the Australian market didn't know what to make of a, a V8 engine in a, what was really quite a mm. compact car by American standards. Uh, it took a while to catch on, and, and then it reached its zenith a number of decades after that and faded back off again now. Now, it's interesting because the original call for expressions of interest uh, uh, for building an Australian car in the 40s, actually, I think Ford put out a proposal to have a V8, but General Motors put out a six-cylinder, and for that and other reasons, or who knows, uh, all the reasons, but we, we went for a six, and we've obviously held on to it, but when they came, they were symbolic of the testosterone-powered idea of of your vehicle. The V8 Valiant was more of a luxu- luxury car rather than a, a performance car. It wasn't, it wasn't ah. marketed as a performance car. Um, ah. And various times it was interesting one day uh, they were selling they were selling the V8 it was the, the Valiant Regal of course was the so-called luxury model but the Valiant V8 had all had virtually the same the same equipment as the, the Regal it just had a V8 motor so it was an interesting exercise and they didn't quite know where it was going to go at that stage you know, who who and why would you need a who would buy and why would you need a V8 was sort of the, the thinking at the time but uh, and, no, course, and in 1960s, I'm <coughs> sorry, I'm just choking. <coughs> in Don't do that. in 19 in 1966, they of course entered one in the Bathurst race, which was won yeah. ironically by Minis. And I spoke to Rano Altonen, and of course I've spoken to Bob Holden, who were the two drivers in the Victory car. And you know, it was the little nimble Minis that were were ahead in, what, the first nine places uh, that won the event. But but still, it was it was an event that you put cars in to show their reliability as well as their uh, idea of being a hot performer. So... Well, yeah, more reliability that, even than hot performance because you had things like Vauxhall Vivas, which were in no one's mind a performance car, 
Um, I mean, it was a much more it was a much more honest category in those days because they were literally cars off the showroom floor uh, hmm. before before it all got carried away. So it was it was people looked to that race to see how the cars performed, and, and it was the same car you could buy off the showroom floor. And it, it made the Mini's reputation as they nipped around the big Fords and ducked in, hmm. ducked around the big Holdens. So it was quite an amazing thing. That whole race, the whole principle of that race, was far more far more relevant to people than, say, today's supercars or V8s or whatever, because, you know, there's, yeah. no, there's no relationship really between a car going on a racetrack today and what you'll buy in a showroom. So back then, mm. you know, you could go in there and buy almost the same car that you saw on the Sunday. In 1965, I think a Japanese cruise came out just to put Toyota Coronas and things in the event. The, did the V8 Valiant, did that help their image at the time? Did Was that their glory days in competing against Holden and Ford? To be honest with you, I can't remember. I don't recall I don't recall there being much of a much of a a thing happening mm. with it at all. I don't I don't recall them using it in their advertising. I don't recall it I just no, not much at all. I think it just sort of passed almost without comment. Now it was at the time when Holden had the HR. Now the the model before that was the H D, which most people panned as being ugly and, and, and different for different sakes and not working. So mm. it became known as the HD, the hurriedly designed, and then the HR <laughs> became the hurriedly revised. Yet it still wasn't uh, leading development technology, was it? No, it wasn't. But then at the time, of course, you know, the Australian buyer didn't want anything complicated. They wanted rugged and reliable and long-lasting. And that was, you know, the, mm. the HR in particular fulfilled that need. Um, I mean, you remember that the early Falcons had all sorts of issues, and again, long memories of, of car owners. The first Falcon used to, the first Ford Falcon, which was the XK model, uh, its front end used to fall apart because it just wasn't able to cope with Australian conditions. Um, whereas the H, the HK Holden, the HR Holden, I mean, they just, they're just rugged old basic, basic transport that did the job that most people wanted. I mean, we've come a long way in those years, as you know. Hmm. I think Valiant tried to be a little bit more elegant. That was my perception, that it it tried to be something a little bit more than basic runaround. It was for those people that had had gone in a slightly bigger direction uh, than than just getting the Holden or Ford. You know, my, yeah, my uncle had one. And, and by the hmm. way, he his test of it, of course... There's always a hill in most capital cities that people could take, the, you know, would drive their car up and boast about how far it got up before <laughs> you had to change down a gear. Yes, right? I, I used to have now, cars that wouldn't get up the hill at all and I'd have to go up in yeah. reverse. <laughs> yes. I, I, I had a Morris Minor. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, one of the world's great performance cars. And yet, at the time when the Morris Minor came out in 1948, it was a revelation because it had uh, rack and pinion steering and it had, uh, you know, quite surprisingly good handling for its time. I mean, at, at the time, it was it was seen as a whole revolutionary new car. And now we look back mm. on it and think, what were they thinking? And that was Paul Morell from the SeniorDriverOz.com website, focused on car owners and drivers over 50 years of age and over 50 IQ points. You're listening to Overdrive. Michael Caltabiano is the CEO 
of the preeminent road research organisation in Australia, ARRB. Last week we covered his idea of creating the perpetual road. This week it's about maintaining the asset. Now we've learnt from the health industry that when a problem becomes visible to all of us, then the disease has often been developing for some time. If we wait until a pothole shows up, is that too late? And what are we doing to better measure before something might become overtly visible? Yeah, well, that, that is absolutely the right question to be asking of a, of a roads engineer. As I said before, the community only see the outcomes from either good maintenance practices or poor maintenance practices. And the and potholes are a outcome from when moisture gets into a road and moisture is the kryptonite of road systems. Um, you've got to keep moisture out of particular granular pavements and the way you do that is to have a, an excellent maintenance regime. So we need to understand how that road is performing, where it's cracked, where it's rutted, um, what the profile is, the strength of that pavement to enable the owner, whether it be local government or state government in most instances, how they then develop a maintenance strategy, an asset management strategy to make sure that they get to those areas of failure before potholes occur. So we have the technology to do that. In fact, ARB is the leader in the world for developing asset management tools, infrastructure measurement tools that are used extensively in Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, Northern Territory, ACT, Western Australia, New Zealand, all consistently use ARB tools now to enable them to develop asset management plans to stop the potholes before they occur. What would be some of those? I remember from years ago when I was more working directly in the industry that you, you had a big Toyota Land Cruiser with laser developments on there so you could measure minute variations. Was that one of the things that you developed and is it still going? Yes, it is. And we've moved to um, many new revolutions of, of those vehicles. So they're called survey vehicles. And we run survey vehicles across all states of Australia. And, and they've got lasers at the front and cameras at the top and GPS locators in them so that we can pick up cracking, rutting and profile at the same time determining lane width, white line suitability, all in a single pass, all without traffic control, all at 80 to 100 kilometres an hour. And we've added to that fleet what is a world first developed here in Australia, which is an IPAVE, an intelligent pavement assessment vehicle, which is a semi-trailer, that at the same time as it's picking up rutting, cracking, profile, lane width, it's actually measuring strength. So there's a series of lasers that actually measure the deflection of the rear wheel of the semi-trailer, which is specially loaded. So it, as it's traversing the road, driving along the road at 80 kilometres an hour, these lasers are picking up the minute deflection in the pavement structure from that wheel and relating that to a strength of the road. Again, all done without traffic control, all, all automatically collected. And we've been doing that in Australia, first country in the world to, to normalise this, this way of collecting data for seven years now. And our state road agencies are getting fantastic value because they're able to decide in their road system, the right time, the right place, and the right treatment to make sure the road doesn't get potholes. You know, Australia really is at the leading edge um, through institutions like ARRB to change the way in which we manage and maintain our very extensive road network. Prevention rather than cure. 
stitch in time, as as we like to say within the road asset business. <laughs> Are we likely also to get data from other sources? The the trucking industry has trucks that now have some that have. Uh, electronic stability controls, if they're being used quite a lot, then you might have a problem with the design of the road or you might have certain difficulties. Is is there a much wider range of data resources and sources? You've absolutely hit the nail on the head, David. Next generation of knowledge is not only about getting the, the baseline of the one source of truth through our vehicle fleet, but is then linking with other data sources like the telematics on trucks that tell us the loading, tell us when it breaks, um, whether it's got its windscreen wipers on or not. Mm. So it gives us climatic data, skid resistance data. Um, also, the, the cameras in vehicles, all of the cameras in 80% of vehicles around the world come from a single source. And we have a relationship with that company, which is an Israeli company called Here Data. And we use that to give us information about road quality, about the white lines on the road, which can then also feed into asset management systems. So we've already created at ARB Australia's largest data lake on transport infrastructure. We also put all the safety data into that data lake. So we've got the first national snapshot of fatality, serious injuries and minor injuries across the entire continent. We also have in that data lake, and which we're very proud of at ARB, a first map of every single journey on the network that is a connected journey. So when you get to get in the vehicle, your mobile phone's on, you're, you're actually having a connected journey. So we know for five years at five-minute increments, the speed and the volume on every single road in Australia, whether they're the major roads or the suburban streets, when you overlay all these data sets, because it's not just about the data, it's what you use it for, when you overlay all these data sets, you can then paint a more fulsome picture for the owners of that network, whether they be local government or state, about where they need to concentrate their efforts, about where are we having serious and fatal injury. Does that line up with areas where your pavement performance is quite low, where your potholes are high, you're cracking, you're rutting of your pavement? Where do we have those confluences of data that we can really zoom in on and solve problems. That's what data lakes are for, and that's what we've created at OWRB. I interviewed the Vice President for Asia and Japan from here, Technologies, uh, the other day, and I was really impressed that there was not only a product-driven business, but one that saw and wanted to participate in a community value. Yeah. I have nothing from them, but uh, you know I see it in a number of trucking industries and so on. If you don't have a, uh, a trucking company doesn't provide their product with environmentally sensitive outcomes, then there's a lot of companies that won't touch them. So you know, do, you, do you see that? Do you see a collective vision evolving and, and now having the data to be able to do it? How much does that data help? Here Technologies is one of our partners, as I said before, and, and it's a it's a natural partnership. They're interested in in the data collection activities and providing that data to their suppliers, and we utilise that data set to then benefit the community by giving that insight and adding value to the other data that we already have. So it's it's a I like to think of it as a jigsaw puzzle, and AWRB is one piece in that puzzle. 
Hear Technologies is another piece, Mobilize another piece, TomTom's another piece. So each of the entities that collects data and telematics in the in the industry companies are parts pieces of this puzzle. And our task, uh, uh, for and on behalf of of Australia and New Zealand, is to is to build the picture, to have the partnerships, to lock in the data sets, to provide the insert insights that the road owners need to enable them to be much more efficient in the, in the spending of very rare taxpayers' dollars. And that was Michael Caltabiano, the CEO of AWRB, the Distinguished Road Research Organisation in Australia, with an international reputation. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Scott Naga, Paul Morell, Michael Caltabiano and Paul Just for their help in this program. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. Or there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. <laughs>